Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. And the title of the message is, I love God, but I don't like people. Have you ever felt like that? Like, man, I really love, <laughs> I've got a hand right up in the back. <laughs> like the, I didn't need to finish the sentence. Like, yep, that's, that one's me. Like you really love God and maybe you love the church in theory, but sometimes you feel like you really just don't like people. We're going to dive into that subject today and uh, it's going to take us into some uh, theological concepts that I'm going to need you just to like really hang with me because it's really foundational to us understanding uh, what the Bible has to say on the subject of community. We're going to learn a lot today. And so our minds are going to get bigger. Our toes are going to get sore. It's going to be an awesome, awesome day. Amen. First John chapter one, uh, turn with me there, South Bay Highland Park. Come on, let's turn in our Bibles. First John chapter one, verses one to four are what we're reading. This is written by uh, the apostle John, the same guy who wrote the gospel of John. He's writing this mainly to the church in Ephesus, um, which uh, is where he was uh, stationed, but also for um, churches in the surrounding area in Asia, uh, Asia Minor. He says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So John here is describing Jesus, but he's describing Jesus in a very poetic way. This life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So Jesus is part of the eternal triune God. He was in eternity and we could not see him, but now God revealed himself to us through the presence of his son, God taking on flesh and bone and coming and inserting himself into the human story and experience. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. We're sharing the gospel with you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And because the Father and the Son are in fellowship in the Holy Spirit, our fellowship is with the Spirit as well. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So this passage is going to help us understand a great deal about what the Bible has to say around the discipline of community, at least what we as modern people refer to as community. Now, truthfully, as far as I know, the word community doesn't appear in your Bibles. Maybe you have a translation that translates it uh, into the word community, but actually community is more of a modern word. But we are, when we use that word, we're describing a very real very legitimate desire, which the Bible offers us up a way to satisfy. And not just like any old way. Like you can, in our day, you can look around at a myriad of various communities and belong to any number of them. Of them. The Bible isn't saying, hey, find a community, any community that you can point to and belong to it and you'll be good. No, the Bible is saying, hey, we have the availability to us to enter into the community that truly satisfies the desire that we have for that kind of communal experience. The Bible points us to a solution that we as humans actually had at the beginning of the world with God and with one another. And it's something that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ actually recovers for us. That something is what the New Testament calls fellowship. Everybody, Highland Park, South Bay, everyone say fellowship. 
Write that word down. It's super important. Fellowship is relationship with God. It's relationship with other believers in the church based upon something called covenant. Covenant is exceptionally important if we are to understand what really is community. Now, all of God's purposes with humanity, they are based upon covenant. A covenant is an agreement that God makes with humans and is the basis of his relationship to them. So God had a covenant with Adam and God had a covenant with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. And the crescendo of the idea of biblical covenant is found in the covenant that God makes with us in Christ Jesus. And just as God has always related to his people through covenant, so also God is still relating to his people through covenant. Now, because God is the one who creates the covenant, that means that God also creates the terms of the covenant, the terms on which he will relate to his people. We can call these terms promises. And those promises are non-negotiable. Like in order for the covenant to be upheld, the promises have to be kept. And so God says, I'm going to keep my promises. And here's what I want you to promise me. And I want you to keep those promises to me. Now, when we turn to the New Testament and we enter into the new covenant, what we find is that God is relating to us on the terms of his mercy towards us and on the terms of us submitting to the lordship of Jesus, uh, confessing to the fact that, that we are sinners and that we are in need of a savior. So like simplistically speaking, here are the terms of the covenant. God's like, I'm going to be merciful towards you for your sin. And we're going to be like, wow, thank God. We really need mercy. That's pretty good news. That's why it's called good news, right? That's the gospel. God's like, I'm going to forgive you. And we're like, wow, you don't say, we really need forgiveness. What a coincidence. It's so great. And, and so that's our, up, that's our end of the bargain. We're going to stay in a place of humility and go, God, we can't do this without you. We make a mess of everything that we touch. We need to involve you in our lives. We need to live under your lordship. And so that's also a part of the promise that we're making, that we're going to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're going to follow him and do everything we can to live his way as opposed to living our way. And God's like, great, we can work together. I can work with that. I've forgiven you of your sins. I've sent my son, Jesus Christ. Now we're cooking with gas. This train can get moving forward. And when you mess up, because you will continue to mess up, guess what? The blood of Jesus has already atoned for all of your sin. All I'm asking is that you stay in a place of going, wow, thank you, God, that I do not have to live under the weight of my sin. I am forgiven. Anyone here grateful for the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah. So, so the gospel recovers fellowship for us. How? By bringing us back into covenant with God. It's really important that you get this, that the covenant creates the fellowship. The covenant creates the community. And because we are all in covenant with God, that means that we are also in covenant together with one another. This biblical covenant, which we're going to talk a little bit more about, this is the basis for all true Christian fellowship. It is the foundation for this local church, and it is the foundation for every true local church. And it is not an option. The Bible does not give us an option to change the terms of the covenant or to dilute the requirements of that covenant. And through this covenant, is where we have our fellowship. So fellowship then is something that is not like a graduated level of Christianity. 
Fellowship is not something that you can hope to have one day if you hang around long enough in church. Fellowship is not an add-on to the Christian life. Fellowship is automatically had in the Christian life because covenant is automatically had in the Christian life. You cannot have Christianity without fellowship in the same way that you cannot have Christianity without covenant. And so to this point, one Bible scholar said that fellowship is the essence, as in uh, the inherent nature, the distinct quality of the Christian life. The tension is that even though uh, fellowship is our theological reality, sometimes for Christians it's not our experiential reality. And this connects to a whole host of different reasons. But I would like to put before us today that one of the primary reasons that fellowship is not always our experience is because of this whole idea that fellowship has to be grounded in covenant. And covenant has become a foreign concept in our highly self-centered and individualistic culture. Because covenant cannot coexist with individualism doesn't mean that God doesn't value you as an individual. Doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about the value of every single individual. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. It just means that you have to understand who you are as an individual, not in the sense that you are a disconnected atom, but in the sense that you are anchored to a transcendent God who is the father of the family to which you now belong. And so fellowship or community is a discipline. Why? Because even though we were designed for it, God made you for it. That's why you desire it. Even though we've entered into covenant with God through Jesus Christ that brings us into fellowship, it still remains a discipline because our own sin nature and even that pesky guy called the devil works against us having fellowship by trying to get us to go back on our promises. Essentially, because you're a sinner and I'm a sinner, my proclivity to sin tries to get me not to take the covenant seriously by prioritizing myself and my desires and my wants and all the stuff that comes along with what my heart is longing for and put those over and above as more important than my covenant family and my relationship with God. And as soon as you start to abuse the covenant, you endanger the fellowship. One of the um, kind of funny but mostly egregious examples of this in the Bible is uh, in an instance where the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a church in the ancient Roman city of Corinth. And Corinth was a wild place filled with wild people who were trying to figure out how to be Christians. It's it's a little bit like Los Angeles in, in that way. And so Paul is addressing a whole host of issues for the Corinthian church. But one of those issues when you get to chapter 11 that Paul is having to address is their abuse of the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper is what we call communion, right? It's the bread and the wine. What are the bread and the wine? They are the symbolic elements of the covenant that God has made with us through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So the bread and the wine, the Lord's Supper, is like the symbol of the covenant that we're in. And the the Corinthians are abusing the Lord's Supper. They're literally turning the Lord's Supper into a drinking and gluttony fest. That's how they're behaving. Like, and Paul's writing to rebuke them. And he says to them in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30, he says, this is why, because of your abuse of communion, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. 
Paul actually says that because you're like abusing the covenant that God has made with you, some of you are actually dying. Like that's kind of a confronting idea. Like, man, some of us are dropping dead because we just don't take the covenant seriously that God has sent his son and paid the ultimate price to enter us, to enter into that covenant with us for. Like we should really be taking that seriously. And some of the Corinthians are like, yeah, no, nah, I, don't, I, I don't think so. That bread looks really tasty. Give me some more wine, right? Like that's the way that they're approaching this new covenant. And Paul says, yes, yeah, some of you are getting sick and dying as a result of that. But before they're experiencing their own physical death, they're experiencing the death of the fellowship of the body of Christ because of their abuse of the covenant. That's why when Paul launches into this subject, he says in verse 17, he says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. (laughs) Like, could you imagine if when we got together as a church, it was actually worse than if we had just stayed apart? (laughs) That's what Paul's saying. Your actual physical fellowship is a disaster. Why? Because you have no regard for the covenant that you've entered into with God and the church. Because you cannot separate fellowship from covenant. So if we bring it back to 1 John, where we started, John has a similar concern for his churches. Not having to do with abusing the Lord's Supper that we know of, but with disregarding the basic theological building blocks for the gospel. In other words, the terms of the covenant. The Christians that John is writing to are being drawn away from biblical truth. And they're uh, therefore being drawn away from the corresponding commitments of the covenant that God has made with them. And so therefore, according to John, this is why he's writing the letter, they're being drawn away from fellowship with God himself. And they're even being drawn away from fellowship with one another. They might still be friends. They might still spend Friday nights together. They might still hang out and, and spend time together. But that's not the same as having what the Bible describes as Christian community, as genuine fellowship that transcends any other kind of relational experience. So I want to just unpack a little bit more this, the circumstances that surrounded uh, John's churches and what they were dealing with, because it's actually quite amazing how they correspond and compare to our own experiences today in being the church in the secular society that we're in. The main thing that John is combating with his letter, this letter, 1 John, uh, is the infiltration of Greek philosophical thought into the churches in the first century. And it's quite similar to us trying to be the church in the midst of the world in a, in a time and a place that has gone quite secular. And, and secularism today is kind of like this funny mix of modernism and postmodernism. In other words, it's like Like Richard Dawkins and the New Atheists got together with the humanities department at your local university and made a stew and started feeding it to society. That's that's like kind of where where we're at right now. And we're trying to be the church in the midst of a people who are all eating that stew. And some of the some of the stew eating is happening in the church. And in the same way, John's got a situation on his hands where some of the people in the church, they're eating the stew of the Greek philosophy that's infiltrating the body of Christ. And so he's writing this letter to combat two major threads of that Greek philosophical thought that are coming into the church. The first major thread is the exaltation of the mind. And not in the sense that like we value like being knowledgeable and being wise and smart, but in the sense of like mystical speculative knowledge over and above like concrete faith and behavior. And the second major strand, along with that exaltation of the mind, is the devaluing of physical matter. Even the conviction that matter is essentially evil. 
This is one of the thoughts that's coming into the church in John's day. And so if you kind of like do the math and follow the logic of that mode of thinking, mind good, matter bad, then what happens is that these Greek cultural ideas mean that people are now starting to view the physical body as inferior and the mind as all important, meaning it doesn't matter what you do with your body as long as you have the right ideas in your head. This, of course, is antithetical to the gospel for a million reasons. But for starters, we worship a God who took on physical matter called a human body and inserted himself into the human story. That we have the hope, just like Carapola, who I talked about, has the hope of a physical resurrection body. You see, the Christian faith is not anti-matter. It's redemptive of matter. It's redemptive of our physical bodies. And so John has to address that. And this valuing of supposedly special mystical knowledge and devaluing of the physical world is exactly why John again and again in this letter eight times he says, we know, we know, we know. I know that you guys over there think that you've got some special knowledge, but we know what true knowledge of God really is. And in connection to what, need, what we know, John doesn't leave it ambiguous or esoteric. He keeps pointing us to the gospel that does not reject the material world, but redeems it, namely by God coming to us in the form of it. Hence why John begins the letter about this word of life, which we have heard and seen and touched and handled. It's down to earth. It's earthy. I can see it. I can experience it. It's not some ambiguous idea. No, it's God who came to us in the flesh, inserted himself into our experience to redeem us from the brokenness to which we have become captives so that we could walk as free sons and daughters of the most high God. Now, I can't help but see a huge correlation to the number one detractor from the experience of fellowship in the church today. And even, dare I say, in in some places, to the existence of fellowship truly in the first place. John's context may not be apples to apples in comparison to our postmodern times, but you and I understand we also face the exaltation of the mind in our culture in the sense that our society prioritizes what we could kind of just call inner feelings, what really smart people would call the psychological self. We prioritize the psychological self, what we think and what we feel in all matters related to identity and therefore the corresponding ethics and morals in relation to how we treat our bodies. So while in our day we don't consider physical physical matter to be evil, because of our loss of belief in a personal creator God, and therefore our loss of belief in the fact that humans are his image bearers, that does logically conclude now in seeing matter not as evil, but as inconsequential. Except in regards to how it serves our desires. So now sex is just a way to pass the time. Unborn babies are just potential persons. Human identity and gender are as fluid and as limitless as the human imagination. And our society embraces and supports these ideas not because we are progressive, but because we have rejected God. Three cheers for our ever so confident belief that God is dead. And because our society is so confident that God is dead, that means also that universal objective morality is dead too. For the simple reason that apart from a personal creator, God, we are nothing more than random collections of atoms who are making morality up as we go. 
Therefore, now we're at a place, and you see it, I know that you do, where any claim to an objective standard of morality and an objective standard of truth in general has become an offense to our society. We consider facts to be intolerant and oppressive, and we value an intersectional approach to special knowledge that a person's identity, either real or imagined, grants them special access to. And so now Christians, they are experiencing pressure to leave truth behind in favor of a more postmodern, less exclusive approach to life, which grants them the salvation of social acceptance. In other words, we are faced with the choice to take the covenant seriously or not. We are faced with the choice to have true Christian fellowship that is grounded in that covenant or to have some false version of that fellowship that is grounded in what our modern day society values. We, just like the churches that John was writing to, were tempted to sacrifice true fellowship in Christ for the sake of maintaining friendship with the world. And this is exactly what John goes on in his letter to say, we must never do. Now the reason that we're tempted to do that is because We're fallen and we're broken. And I have this temptation just like you. We could could call the temptation self-preservation. We want to be liked. We want to be accepted. We don't want to be denigrated by people in the world. And so sometimes we just feel this need to go along, to get along. And if we can just, you know, find a way to agree with things that are absolutely disagreeable through and through, maybe, maybe we'll make it through okay. But here's the thing. and Here's my caution to you is that the casualty on the other side of your self-preservation is indeed your selfhood. Because you cannot locate yourself. You cannot really know yourself apart from knowing the God who created you and entering into the covenant that he has invited you into within the family that comes from him. You see, the picture in 1 John and in the entirety of the New Testament and the Old Testament is that this fellowship that we as Christians are invited into is something that first and foremost exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are already in fellowship. Friends, the gospel before it is good news about anything is the good news of God. All of the good news about the love of God and the joy of God and the peace of God is the fact that we are entering into the love, the joy, and the peace that God is himself experiencing within his triune nature. So when we talk about things like love and joy and peace, we're not talking about things that we have the liberty of defining on our own terms. We're talking about godly things that have been happening since before time began. And God says, you can come into this fellowship experience. I'm inviting you into it. And so this is a fellowship that is happening irrespective of whether we are experiencing it or not, which means that the only way for us to enter into that fellowship is to go through the doorway that God has made available to us. And that doorway is the good news of the new covenant given to us in Jesus Christ. It's the only way in. We can't hear God's invitation to walk through that door and go, no, thanks, God. I think I'll find another. It doesn't work that way. What did Jesus say? I am the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father except through me. It's this powerful, exclusive claim that brings you into the most abundant, most eternal, most wonderful life if only you'll enter into the fellowship that has existed since before you even knew God was a person 
and you could just come on in and enjoy the eternal fellowship that he has never not experienced and that you and I can make our way into through the doorway of that new covenant. We have to believe the gospel in order to come in. That's central to the covenant. And believing the gospel, what we find out is that it means believing some like really specific things. It means believing the terms of the covenant and behaving in accordance with those terms. And these beliefs and behaviors, that's what ran against the grain of the Greek thinking that John is combating. And they also run against the grain of the values of our secular society as well. Which means that you and I can't, without thinking, just import all of these secular values into the church for the sake of social acceptance and expect to retain the holy fire of what it means to be a church of the living God. You see, a church cannot exist on its own terms, say, an agreed-upon commitment to some flavor of the weak social cause because it won't remain a church. If it does that, it will be a social club dressed up in priestly garments offering worship to false gods. And the reason some people are so intent on going to such great lengths to play that dress-up game and practice those empty rituals is because they want to maintain fellowship with God and friendship with the world, but they haven't realized that the moment they practice prioritize friendship with the world, God made his way for the door. And so they might have the trimmings and the trappings of the church. They might sing the songs. They might put money in the offering plate. They might get together in small groups, but because their fellowship is not grounded in covenant, it is no fellowship at all. And so what they are limited to experience is nothing more than an idealized version of friendship. But God has invited us into something so much greater than an idealized version of friendship that is grounded in some ambiguous agreement to be there for one another. God has called us into something infinitely better. And so what I want to do is just as quickly as I can give you three hooks to hang all of these thoughts that I'm bringing to you today to help you understand what it is that we have been called into as the church of Jesus Christ. The first hook is this, is that fellowship is is grounded upon commonality in Christ Jesus. First and foremost, that's what our relationship is based upon, is that we are, we are all in Christ. How does John say it in the passage we read? He says, that which we have seen and heard, we pro- proclaim also to you. That's the gospel. Why do we proclaim it to you? So that you may have fellowship with us. John says you have to hear the gospel and believe the gospel, and if you hear and believe the gospel, then you'll have the fellowship that we are experiencing. One Bible commentator said it this way, that faith is the doorway to fellowship. And by faith, he doesn't mean like positive thinking or willing something into existence. He means belief and, and submission, to, submission to one common Lord, one common Savior, and commitment to the gospel that has been passed on by his apostles. That's why John is writing. He's saying, hey, guys, this pagan philosophical form of the gospel that you're, like, you're gravitating towards is not the gospel. He will go on to say that it is the doctrine of antichrist spirits. The gospel, it turns out, is some very specific things laid out in Scripture. That Jesus is part of the eternal triune God. That he came in the flesh. That you and I and every human being who ever lived is made in the image of God. But we are now captives to our sin. Jesus came to us. He died on the cross to atone for our sins so that we could once again become children of God and live the lives that he destined us to live. That's the truth of the scripture, and those scriptural truths are the only adequate foundation for true fellowship. You see, covenant, biblically speaking, 
uh, or just human speaking, always requires a written record of the commitment that the two parties are agreeing to. And that written record has been given to us in the form of the Bible. God says, here's the covenant. Live this way. And the reason that churches start to fall apart when they walk away from the authority of the Scripture is because you can't walk away from the Scripture without walking away from the covenant. And you see this time and time again when a denomination says, you know what, it's going to be Scripture plus fill in the blank for us. And that's how we're going to live our lives and conduct our behavior. And time and time and time again, those churches, they disintegrate, they shrivel, and they eventually die. Because you can't really have fellowship if we're not grounded in something that transcends us, this eternal purpose and cause that God has invited us into. This is why we say here all the time at C3LA that part of our purpose is what? It's to make disciples who walk in the truth of the scriptures. It's not a nice to have. It's a must have. Because apart from walking in the truth of the scriptures, we can't have fellowship. We might be friends. We might be neighbors. We might be colleagues and acquaintances. But all of those things are significantly different than what it means to be fellows, to be brothers and sisters in Christ. I think one of the things that has to be said is that we have taken for granted what it means to have commonality in Christ because Christianity in America for so long has been seen as cultural. Within most of our lifetimes, you know, it was pretty normal to run into somebody and just kind of assume that they had some kind of exposure to Christianity, some kind of Christian upbringing, and therefore shared some kind of values with you. And so we've lost sight of what it means to be, for this to be special, and for this to be powerful, and for this to be distinct from the world. But you know, the, um, the Christians in the first century, they, they didn't have commun- community with one another on the basis of like shared interests. Like they didn't get together because they all loved Yellowstone. <laughs> or Billie Eilish, or I don't know who's cool now. Like, yeah, is she the one? Okay. <laughs> or, or, or some other interest. Their community was founded upon the fact that they were all in Christ and that they had a shared desire to go on a life and death, life or death mission to share the love of Jesus with the world so that everybody would hear the gospel. You see, this is so important to us because we have to understand that the relationships we have in the church, they are distinct from any other relationship that we might have. It's not just friendship. Now, it will include friendship. My greatest and, and most lifelong friends are, are people who have, who have been in the church, and I will journey with them for the rest of my life. I'm not going anywhere. I don't know if you're also going to move to the Midwest or Nashville or something like that, but as long as you're not going anywhere, we're going to continue to journey together, and maybe we'll have the privilege of being able to get close with one another and walk together in Christ in the city of Los Angeles. And that's what Christian community and fellowship is based upon, is the fact that we are both in Christ, not that we both like the same things. And so even though we're going to have the psychological enjoyment of friendship, we have to understand that our relationship goes much deeper, as much more deep as being common in Christ Jesus goes deeper than a love for In-N-Out Burger or something like that, right? We have to start taking stock of the commonalities in life that we've been counting as the most significant. 
and therefore which relationships we lean on and allow to shape us and direct us and satisfy our desire for community. Because here's the deal, those relationships that you value the most, those are gonna be the ones that you count as significant when you go through a hard time, when you go through a trial. And so if the commonalities that you've been prioritizing are commonalities in the fact that you both love acting, singing, trading stocks, or have shared life experiences or whatever it is, then when you go through a trial, those are gonna be the people that you turn to at the expense of your other relationships, which means that if all those relationships exist outside of Christian community, you are only one trial away from walking away from the church altogether. So we have to understand the power, the priority, the wonder of recovering our commonality in Christ Jesus. And it might seem like kind of a, you know, a harmless issue of, of priority, but I promise you priority is everything. Paul says in Galatians 6.10, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially to those, Paul calls them to the priority of especially doing good to those who are in the body of Christ. Why? Because when the household is in order and flourishing, then the doorway looks really inviting. The local church should be the most relational place on the earth and in the midst of a society that is increasingly more fractured and broken, when we prioritize the house of God and that fellowship, then then we can be the city set on a hill that Jesus Christ described the church as being. And this only happens by engaging in the kind of discipline and care that makes something truly unmatched in its desirability and, and so strong in its identity. But if we leave this for the sake of fitting in here, then the identity of the church is weakened, the desirability of the church begins to fade, and there's no reason for the people standing over here to look at that and go, wow, that looks like a place where I want to be. That looks like a people to whom I want to belong. That looks like a God to whom I want to give my life and serve for all the days of my life. There's power in prioritizing the fellowship that we have in Christ Jesus by elevating our understanding of the fact that even though sometimes we might not get along all that well, actually we have more in common with one another than we do with the person who likes all the same stuff we do but doesn't know God. Have you ever thought about the fact that you have more in common with the persecuted Christian in Iraq than the person that is your roommate or the person that you go to all of your acting auditions with who doesn't follow Jesus and doesn't know God but you have so much in common. We spend so much more time thinking about that commonality than we do about the commonality with this person who could not be more different to us. Their life could not look any more different to our lives and yet because we are both in Christ. And you're going to have deep friendships here in the church, but there's also going to be some people like, man, that guy. I don't know about him. Some of you probably feel that way about me. God bless you, you're still here. But we remember, I've got more in common with him or her than I do with somebody out here who I love and respect, but who doesn't want anything right now to do with God. That's when we prioritize the household, then it becomes a really inviting entity for people to make their way into. Number two, second hook that we can hang our thoughts on today is this idea of uh, contribution to the family. So that uh, word fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia. And it's translated as fellowship in the New Testament. But a lot of times, depending on the context, it's translated as contribution or participation or partnership or sharing. Uh, 
And again, it points us to this reality that fellowship in the New Testament is not some theological thing. No, it's like a down-to-earth, hands-and-feet, sacrificial living kind of thing. And so you can't understand fellowship without understanding contribution. The problem in the church right now is that we kind of view contributing as like a graduated level of Christianity. We think that that's like something that eventually I get to. For now, I just kind of hang around and attend the Sunday services and get my spiritual fix. And eventually I'll contribute, maybe if they're lucky. And so we've lost sight of the fact, we've lost sight of the fact that biblically speaking, there is no fellowship apart from contribution. That the two are one and the same. And so we can't view that as some like next stage of Christian development. No, 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 that's like to be a part of the fellowship is to be a contributor to what the fellowship is experiencing. And here's the deal, God has given you things to contribute. Like God has given you a physical body with energy that you can use to serve others. God has given money to you that you can tithe. There's a novel idea. God has given spiritual gifts to you that you are called to uncover and to put to use in the body of Christ so that you can do what Paul says. You can edify the body. You can build up the body. You can actually contribute to other people's spiritual growth and progress. You can bear one another's burdens. You can do all those things that come along with genuine fellowship that isn't going anywhere because, again, you're grounded in that commonality in Christ. So it doesn't really matter if I don't like you all that much all the time. What matters is that, man, we're in Christ together and we're going to be together for like something called eternity. And so I might as well get used to serving you now and you might as well get used to serving me now because that's what the Christian life is. Third hook to hang your thoughts on and I'm all done and the keys player can come is uh, this idea of commission to make disciples, commission to reach the lost, to go into all the world. And I want to close on this because I want to turn our attention to the mission that has not ended, to the mission that Jesus has sent us on as a people. The reason why we're still here in Los Angeles, why we haven't packed up and shipped out and moved into bunker houses to kind of wait till the storm passes. No, no, no. That's not the way God has called us to live. God has called us to live on mission with one another, to be a covenant community who exists, not just for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of the people who are not yet here. And while our commonality in Christ with fellow believers believers is necessary and distinguished. At the same time, we must recognize how important our relationships and friendships are with people outside the church and that God has a role and a purpose for us in those relationships. Now, I admit I have got limitations in this area, friends. So much of my life is, is in this Christian context where my time is spent shepherding and pastoring the church and the staff and the team and the leaders, and so much of my existence is focused on this, and you have a leg up on me in this area because for so many of you, God has called you into different industries. God's called you into education, or God's called you into counseling or God's called you into social services or God's called you into movies or into film or whatever it is and God has you there on purpose for a purpose he's placing you around other people so that you can actually be light in the darkness not so that you can figure out how to fit in with the darkness and then come back here and be light on Sunday morning no he sent you there for a reason so that you can actually begin to make the difference that God has destined you to make and we share that commission with one another. And one of the things that I've noticed is that it's becoming increasingly difficult for genuine Christians to know how to be a Christian among their non-Christian friends. And so much of this has to do with everything I've been describing in regards to the society 
in which we live. It used to be within most of our lifetimes that a Christian and a non-Christian could be friends and still find that they shared a lot of the same values. And that's because there was a time when our nation was much more influenced by Christianity, much more influenced by biblical ethics than it is today. Now we find ourselves in this funny place where because of the influence of postmodernism and all of these critical theories, Christianity is not just seen as something that's irrelevant. No, no, no. Christianity in a lot of settings is seen as something that's harmful and evil. How do you be a friend to somebody who thinks that what you believe is harmful? You will experience this and the best way forward is not to throw our hands up and go, well, guess we can't do anything. No, the, we don't have an option. We're here to engage the city. We're here to love them and serve them and point them towards Jesus Christ. So how do you act as a Christian within a friendship outside the church? I only have just a few thoughts to offer up to you. I think that the answer is that we be Christians first and friends second. As I reflected upon that this week, one of the things I realized is, of course, those two are not really in tension with one another. For to be a Christian is to treat people in the very best way that they could ever hope for a friend to treat them. Most of the time, that's going to mean kindness, compassion, and generosity. Sharing fun experiences with them. Go surfing, go to the movies, do things, hang out. Don't be weird. Sometimes it's going to mean speaking truthfully to them about the gospel and about their need of salvation and even about the biblical view of hot-button issues in hope that they can see the abundant life that is in the way of Christ. This is the entire point of being light and darkness, is it not? That there must be contrast. Our friendships with people outside the church just as an encouragement to you, they must involve every now and then a gentle reminder that you don't see the world exactly the same way that they do. This is why uh, we must be able, as Peter said, to give a reason, give a defense for the things that we believe. So that as we engage people in that way, we can help them to see that there is another way. And if somebody truly doesn't want to be your friend if you engage them like that, and friend, they were not your friend. I want to say this, um, and I don't mean this in, in any way uh, triggering at all, but I don't see any other option than for me to stand up here every now and then and to talk about things that are against the grain of what our society promotes because I only want to bring biblical truth to you to help you remain true to the covenant so that we can remain true to the fellowship. And so every now and again, I'm going to talk about things that are going to rub people kind of the wrong way every now and then. It's not because I'm trying to be offensive. Um, although at this point in my life, I think I've given up on uh, being non-offensive. But I'm not doing it just for the sake of it. I'm doing it because the truth is confronting, but it's also liberating. And my encouragement to you, South Bay and Highland Park, is please don't let, uh, when you bring somebody to church, please don't let me talking about something be the first time that they hear a Christian's perspective on one of those issues. 
because you were their friend for one, two, three years, yet you resisted every single opportunity to share with them what you as a Christian actually believes and what you hold to be true. Don't let me be the shock. Be bold. Be kind. But be bold. And eventually, here's what's going to happen. Um, apart from the Word of God, Jesus says people build their lives on sinking sand. And so your friend who doesn't know the Lord actually needs what the gospel has to offer. And eventually they're going to go through a trial that's bad enough that's going to make them realize that the ground that they're standing on is eroding and sinking. And so they're going to need a friend who's been consistent and loving and truthful enough that they know that they can turn to who evidently has built their life upon a, a rock. And that's what Jesus says. That's what we do when we build our lives on his word. I'll close with this quote. Nancy Piercy, one of my favorite authors from her book, Love Thy Body, says that Christians must be prepared to minister to the wounded, to the refugees, listen to this, to the refugees of the secular moral revolution whose lives have been wrecked by its false promises of freedom and autonomy. When people are persuaded that they are ultimately disconnected, atomistic selves, their relationships will grow fragile and fragmented. Those around us will increasingly suffer insecurity and loneliness, and we would add anxiety and depression. This new polarization can be an opportunity, though, for Christian communities to become safe havens where people witness the beauty of relationships, that's fellowship, reflecting God's own commitment and faithfulness, that's covenant. When we value the covenant and stay true to the covenant, we have genuine fellowship, and the world has an opportunity to see something in us that they can't see anywhere else. So maybe you're sitting here asking, what do I do? Well, there's a lot of practical things that we could do. I mean, obviously being involved in church and inserting our lives into the family groups and team and giving and all that kind of stuff. And I really do encourage every single one of us to like, that's what it means to prioritize the, the fellowship. But more than that, I want to get to the heart because I don't want you just to do things that you think are going to make a difference for you. No, I want to speak to the core of who you are and help you to get a, get a revelation of the way that God is calling you to live. And first and foremost, that way is in this little thing called being countercultural. Friends, Christianity is at its finest when it's countercultural. Even when Christianity is common in a state or a nation, and I pray, let me be clear, I pray that Christianity would be common in every nation across the world because we're talking about people's salvation here. But even when Christianity is common, it's still going to be countercultural to the spirit that's at work in the world. And so you and I have got to embrace being a countercultural people. We have got to step ashore onto the place that Augustine called the city of God and then burn the ship that brought us to that place and not look back and forget about fitting in from here on out because it ain't coming, friends and family. You've got to get comfortable with the fact that you're going to stand out, not fit in, that you're going to go against the grain, that you're going to be counter to the ethics and values of the culture, and that's how you be salt, that's how you be light. As long as you are focused on trying to be the same as the world, you'll never actually reach the world. But friends, we've got a mission that Jesus Christ has sent us on that is far too important to throw away for the sake of being accepted by people because you believe all the same things that they believe. Proverbs 15.4 says, A righteous person swears to their own hurt and does not change. When you and I entered into covenant with God, you know what we did? We swore to our own hurt 
and then we go, we're not going to change. And Jesus made it really clear from the beginning, did he not? He said, if you want to follow me, there's that cross-shaped thing over there. Pick it up, put it on your back, and let's get walking. There's no false advertising with Christianity. Friends, if you want an easy life, don't be a Christian. Please, I'm begging you. Make your way to the exits now. God bless you. But if you're looking for a life of purpose and meaning and significance, then there is no better thing that you can do than to be a follower of the risen Lord Jesus Christ who might call you into a life of suffering, but he calls you into a life of significance and purpose that has eternal weight and value. Biblical community has a cost and you can't haggle on the price. The cost is the covenant. The covenant is what it is. It's given to us in the truth. Narrow is the way but it leads into the most abundant, most wonderful life that we could ever hope to have. And I just want to say one more thing in closing. This is to everybody, but it's also, it's also specifically to men. Because one of the symptoms of our postmodern culture is the devaluing of, of men in our society under the banner of everything being patriarchal and, and whatnot. And so when you flip on the TV now and you watch a sitcom, the guy is always kind of a doofus. And men are portrayed as not knowing anything and as, you know, kind of having to take a back seat all of the time. And man, let me just be really clear. We love, value, and promote women in our church. I think we have more women leaders in our church than we do have men leaders. And we have women that up here, up here that preach and prophesy, and they're so significant in the health of, of this, uh, this expression, this body of Christ here in Los Angeles. But we don't do it to the detriment of devaluing men. And so I just want to say to men right now, even though the culture might be against you, and I promise you for a lot of you know, in a lot of ways, it is kind of against you. Do not be afraid. Be bold in your faith. Be kind, but be bold in your faith. Take every single opportunity to share your testimony, what God has done in your life. Be the first person at church in Sunday. When an altar call is given to come down and receive prayer, you be a man and you get humble and you situate yourself at the feet of Jesus Christ and you receive prayer and you lift up your hands. You be a worshiper of the Most High God. You stand up as a stalwart for the priority of family, for the priority of biblical truth. You stand up as a man who is unafraid to take shots every now and then, even though some people might turn against you for what you believe. Do not be afraid. Don't bow to the culture. Bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be like, uh, like, um, like the three Hebrew boys in Babylon who went into the fiery furnace and they said, God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow to that idol that you've got over there, Nebuchadnezzar. And I want to say that to you guys. Even if things don't get easier, stay true to the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep serving Him. Be bold. Be light in darkness. God is building His church. The devil is losing. Jesus is winning. We're not done yet. We've got ground to take. We're called here. We're here. We're not going away. God has called us to this place. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.